Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Thomas Hausman. We're at Anami Vineyards in, uh, at Southside Carlton. Uh, it's June 19th, 2018, and we're going to start, Thomas, by asking you, why wine? Well, it's interesting because, it, I mean, wine was never something that was part of my household. Wine was never something that was part of my culture. Um, I grew up in the South, so, you know, it, it's a sweet tea culture. Um, but it's interesting, when I was in, oh, I don't even know what it was, uh, we were living in, in Virginia, and my parents, um, I, it, I just remember we were in, a, we were in a, a store, and my parents were doing whatever they do, and I was wandering around as a kid, bored, and there was a, um, a home winemaking kit. This is the 70s when like home winemaking and macrame and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Everybody did stuff at home. They probably had home cheese making kits and whatever. And I was probably, I wasn't that old. I was maybe third grade. And I remember just pestering my parents to get me this home winemaking kit. And it's like, I had no interest in drinking wine, but I wanted to, I wanted to make it. I was a little science nerd. So to their credit, they bought me this home winemaking <laughs> kit, which basically was like packets of of like uh, bread yeast and an airlock that you put in a bottle. And I, and this is in Virginia, in my in my parents' basement, I made uh, Welch's grape juice wine and uh, an, an orange juice concentrate wine that I'm sure today would be absolutely delicious <laughs> if we had aged them, but we didn't, and I don't even remember drinking them. I'm sure they were hooch. Um, and that just kind of went away. It was just something that I was interested in as a kid. And then, you know, like flash forward through like all the stuff that happens in your life. And I ended up in California. I was going to school to be a, a dance major and I was in the library researching Ezra Pound. And I'm back trying to find any books possible about Ezra Pound in a library. And generally, Ezra Pound books, if you're ever in a library, are like hidden somewhere where nobody can find them. <laughs> so I'm like digging through, and all of a sudden I come across this giant tome. And it's, that's the beauty of libraries and bookstores in general, is that you never know what you're going to find. So I open this thing up, and it's this British manual on how to like make wine. And it's like, I, I, the British will make wine out of anything. Let's just, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Um, so I'm maybe, at this point, I'm maybe 18, 19 years old. Once again, still not really, like, never really been in a winery, never tasted wine for real. Um, but, you know, as a 19-year-old, I'm interested in fermenting things and making <laughs> alcohol. So I get this book, I check it out, and I start making um, wine out of the things that the British are suggesting. So I made, I made kiwi wine, I made pomegranate wine, I made banana wine. Um, never make banana wine. <laughs> it is as awful as it sounds. Um, it is slimy. It's disgusting. 
pomegranate wine, not so bad. But anyway, I was living in the San Joaquin Valley, so for me, I could get fruit for free. Sure. And uh, I just, I made wine. It was, it was fun. It was, once again, it wasn't, it, I got to drink it, which was free as a college student. Free is great. Uh, but it was more about the fermentation process. So basically, we can just basically jump forward again, you know, because I was a dancer at that point. I went to New York, I danced professionally, I traveled around the world. And when I was traveling as a, a dancer, uh, basically the way it works is uh, you travel one place, you do a show, you starve all day long, you dance. At the end of the time you're dancing, you haven't eaten maybe since breakfast. You go to a reception for whoever has sponsored the show. Mm -hmm. At that point, you're standing around with a bunch of people in suits and dresses, and there's food and wine, and you're trying really hard to not like wolf stuff down because you haven't eaten in 12 hours, um, and drink a little bit of wine, and talk to people. So basically, that was when I first came into contact with, with wine that was tasty. <laughs> Um, and I remember standing around, you know, with a glass of wine, trying really hard not to like slurp it down and eat everything that was there. But I came into contact with it. And um, is this getting too long for you, Perfect. by the way? No, okay. there's no such thing as too long. Okay. Uh, so what ended up happening, so the way that, that for me as a winemaker started was equally as weird. So I had uh, the man who was our lighting director for, the, for the, the dance company I was working for was an avid home brewer and he lived in New York. Um, so if you know anything about New York, New York apartments are very small. His fiance was also a lighting designer, also a small apartment. My job basically, he would invite me over and he'd say, you come over, we're gonna brew, um, you can take home like three or four beers when we're done. All you have to do is hold this colander while I pour boiling liquid at your hands. And I'm like, what could go wrong? I mean, it's free beer. So we'd hang out, we'd drink beer, we'd brew, and I would hold the colander and I'd leave with like three or four bottles. It was great, it was a great way to hang out. So going back to the story about the two of them, they were getting married and it was the New York story where you take two tiny apartments and you turn them into one tiny apartment. And we were sitting after a show in Chelsea and hanging out, and I remember her turning to him and saying, you know, like just point blank, out of nowhere, your brewing equipment is not gonna come to our new apartment. And he, to his credit, turned to me immediately and said, do you want it? And I immediately said, sure, which I did gave no thought to. So 50 to 60 trips on the subway later with a carboy <laughs> between my legs, you know, one at a time, I got all this brewing equipment to my apartment in Queens and I had to learn how to brew. So I, the reason I'm telling you this whole story is because if you go back to what I'd said before, is I started out brewing in my apartment the way that I had done it in college when I found this book. Um, it wasn't necessarily about making the most wonderful beer possible. It was like, what can I make that has alcohol? <laughs> and over time, you know, like, like over a couple of years, it went from just making really alcoholic beers to wiping down the countertops with Clorox and sanitizing and refining recipes. So basically I, I went from the guy that's fun to brew with <laughs> to the guy that is no fun to brew with because I was like, oh, you know, with the sanitize everything. And that was the start for me of my winemaking career because I realized that 
there are a number of things. I loved being creative as a dancer. I hated New York. I hated living in New York. I loved brewing. I loved, I really wanted to have a job that was being creative, but in New York where I lived, I would look out my apartment window and there was a tree growing. And it was one of those, you know, those city trees that had the little square of dirt mm -hmm. and there was concrete everywhere else. And I looked out the window and I knew if the tree had leaves on it, it had to be spring, summer, or possibly fall. Fall if it was golden color, if it had no leaves, it was winter. And that was my connection to nature. And I didn't grow up that way. So for me, I was like, you know what? I need to find a new career. I had a lot of friends that were getting hip replacements, knee replacements, whatever replacements. I'm like, look, I'm 30 years old. I have a, I have a body that works. I want to be able to walk the rest of my life. I want to be creative. So I said, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to learn how to make wine. Um, I knew that I didn't want to do beer because I, the kind of dance that I did was, was modern dance. Modern dance is something that was always different, always evolving, always creating. I wasn't on Broadway where it was like five, six, seven, eight, you do the same thing every day, you fake it and you're done and you do it like seven times a week. So I, for me, brewing was that. Brewing was like I'd wake up on Monday, but it's porter day, you know? The next day is like, like pale ale day. Winemaking is not that. Went back to school to be a winemaker. At this point, I want to point out, I had never actually set foot in a winery. I'd never been in a winery. I had no idea what winemaking would be like. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try it. We'll see what happens. I knew that if I failed miserably at winemaking and I hated it, I could go back to dancing. As it stands, it didn't work out that way. Here I am, you know, a career later, being able to do everything that I wanted. I'm being creative. I have like flexibility. Every day is different. It's very much like dancing, but in a winery. So there's like the 30 minute answer to like the world's Thanks. easiest question. <laughs> easiest and hardest at the same time. So how did you get from there to here? Well, basically, you know, I went to Fresno. I was accepted to UC Davis. Um, I went to UC Davis. At the time, Davis didn't have a winery. Davis was making wine in carboys. Really? And I was like, I've already done this. I've already, I know how to make things in carboys. I've been doing this for a while now. Um, a friend of mine said, you need to check out Fresno State. And I'm like, I am not going to Fresno. But since I went to Davis, I went to Davis, I was like, well, this is just like the other end of the San Joaquin Valley. I'll go check out Fresno. I went to Fresno, and I remember the instructor saying to me, as I sat down with him, he goes, so why do you want to be here? And I'm thinking in my head, I don't want to be here. <laughs> Who are you to question me? I already been accepted to Davis, you know? And, um, you know, that's what, like, looking back on it, I'm like, what an arrogant shit I was. But at the time, you know, it was like, I was just like, I don't want to be here. And then, so he actually started questioning me and making me think about why I wanted to be there. And then, um, Unlike Davis, Davis, they gave me like a photocopied, here's, here's, your, here's what you'll be doing for the next two years. Um, at Fresno, the instructor started writing out, well, you want to take this class and you want to avoid this guy. And it was like, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well, at Davis, I'm a number. And here they're actually like talking about like, you need to take this class and avoid this and mm -hmm, take this. Mm -hmm. And not only that, he started showing me the classroom, which went to the classroom and directly across the hall was a working winery with tanks like you have here in this winery. And I was like, okay, 
this is an actual winery where, you know, I won't be just learning things in theory. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go to Fresno State. Went to Fresno State, got my degree, and before I graduated, I had a job working at Hush Vineyards in the Anderson Valley, uh, making cool climate whites and Pinot Noir. Um, went from there to New Zealand, and then uh, ended up in Oregon by, by happenstance. I was living in New Zealand. Um, I wanted to stay in New Zealand, and I was on a month-to-month -month visa. <laughs> and basically, you know, I was re having to renew my visa every month to stay in New Zealand, trying to find a permanent job. And um, it was one of those things I had to come back and do taxes and all the things that happen when you're out of a country. I thought, I'm going to do a harvest in Oregon and go back to New Zealand. And um, came here. There was an opening for an assistant winemaker job at Ponzi Vineyards. And I said to Louisa Ponzi, um, I said, look, you know what? You're looking for an assistant winemaker. It's August. I'm looking for a harvest position. Hire me as a harvest winemaker, a harvest assistant winemaker. I'll get you through the vintage. And then if it works out, we can talk about me staying. And if it doesn't, I go back to New Zealand. And I had no intention in staying, but because um, I'd never been to Oregon. And uh, and it ended up that I've been here ever since. I've never left. <laughs> when you were in New Zealand and decided to do a harvest, why did you choose Oregon then? There's a, I mean, I, as anybody that knows Oregon and, um, and New Zealand, we have an incredible connection between those two places. People go back and forth between those two regions all the time. And I, once again, I'd never been here. I'd, 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 never, I'd never seen it. I didn't taste the wines. So for me, it was just one of those things that I took it on the advice of the people that I'd been working for in Oregon, that, I mean, in, in New Zealand, mm -hmm. that Oregon was a place to go and at least do a vintage. So once you got to Ponzi and you decided to stick around Ponzi a little while, what happened next? What happened to get you to stay? And what happened to get you to honor me? Well, I mean, I was... It's interesting, you know, I mean, you go to school and you, I, I think about, I often think about things for me, you know, in that, 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 that context as a performing artist, as a, as a dancer or a musician or whatever. And you go, to, you go to school and they teach you, you know, even for me as a modern dancer, you had to learn ballet. Uh, if you go to school as a musician, you know, you may want to major in jazz, but you have to learn, like, you have to learn all the basics. So I went to school and in school, as a winemaker, they teach you how to make wine cleanly and safely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I landed in Oregon, and I'm working at a family winery that's been around pretty much since the very beginning, and all indigenous ferments, and not doing things the way that I'd been taught, you know? I mean, it's like, and, I, and I'd started out in California. So first of all, you know, there's no yeast being used in the, in the fermentation of the Pinot. And, you know, you're picking in Oregon where you're not necessarily, like in, in California, cloud in the sky. All of a sudden you've got every farmer calling that you have to pick because there's clouds and it's going to rain and the bees are eating the grapes. And I remember coming to, to Ponzi and I remember them making fun of me. Like that was the very first thing. It's like, oh, here comes a California boy. And, you know, and, and I kind of was that. I kind of was. It's like all of a sudden, you know, I had to just sit back and learn 
and I call it PU, Ponzi University. <laughs> um, I learned that everything that you've been taught in school are like learning scales for a musician or learning ballet as a dancer. You know, they teach you how to do things right and now I'm going to Ponzi and it's like, it's like jazz music. You start to riff on that. You start to learn that you have a basis and that isn't necessarily how things are done, that you can do a lot of things differently. Sure. So I spent four and a half years there, um, had a great time. It's how my name became Thomas instead of Tom. Uh, and here I am, I'm at NME. I mean, it, that, that part's a little different, but yeah, it was a great, it was a great experience. Talk about some of your, you mentioned obviously the Ponzi's, uh, other mentors in the industry as you were kind of coming into know Oregon and Oregon wine specifically. Who else did you like lean on for support? Well, I think that, you know, I have to say that I have to give a lot of credit to the Ponzi's, but even before that, but when I was in school, my very, very first day in a winery. So I'm gonna flash back to, to college again. Um, I went to school, I arrived, it was 1999. I was in school for two weeks and there was an urgent request uh, from a winery in Mendocino County that was like, we need a harvest enologist. We realize it's harvest. Do you have anybody at school? And I'm thinking, okay, I've been here two weeks, never been in a winery. I know nothing about winemaking, but if I'm gonna figure out whether I like to do this or not, let's do it now. I'll go work a harvest if they'll accept me. Mm -hmm. And that way I know that I don't have to go through this program. If I hate it, I'm done. I go back to New York. So I went to Fetzer Vineyards in Mendocino County, and there were, I believe, five winemakers. Um, Nancy Walker, who was my mentor, an amazing woman. Uh, Dennis Martin, who had been at Fetzer forever. Um, uh, John White and Bob Blue, who was in charge of the, um, the organic Bonterra program. So my job, they, basically they decided to hire me. My very first day at work, so I'm in the wine industry, the very first day they were doing a photo shoot. And I'm standing there and they have all these winemakers, okay, very first day to winery. Standing there on the crush pad, not knowing what to do, and all of a sudden, winemakers start taking off their clothes. <laughs> and all these people who I've never met before are standing on the crush pad in their underwear and they jump into these tanks of grapes. <laughs> and I'm just like, I love this industry. <laughs> There are a bunch of naked people and grapes. <laughs> this is what I'm going to start doing. And um, my job, once they got out after the photo shoot, was to take all these winemakers who I'd never met before and hose the grapes out of their underwear. <laughs> Very first day in a winery. Uh, I knew that I'd met my people. Um, Aside from that, they're all very talented winemakers. Nancy Walker took me under her wing um, and I worked with her. But the cool part for me, and this is from the very beginning before I'd ever really done anything, is that I was working with five different winemakers. Each one of them had a different program in Fetzer. Each one of them came to me because I was in charge of the tanks and making sure that everything, I was a liaison between the winemakers and the seller. Mm -hmm. But what I saw was, from the very beginning is there's not one way to make wine. That every winemaker had a different way and a different idea of making wine, and they were all right. But they had to work together because they were in one winery. So if we flash forward to where we were talking about Ponzi and being here, is um, I got here and realized that, yet again, that there's not one way. They had a house style. 
Um, so when I was offered the job to come to Anime, interviewed, you know, basically as I go back to dance, auditioned <laughs> with all these other people around the world, got the job here, and they said to me, they said, you know, we're looking at changing the way we've done things here. Um, this winery's existed since 1979. This is 2007. We want you to make the wines you love. We want to go from being 35% estate to being 100% estate. And um, we will figure out a way to sell the wines that you love. So I was, giving, uh, I was given an opportunity that probably most winemakers don't have, which is to come into an established winery, sure. plant a bunch of vineyards, plant a bunch of things you like, make the wines you love, and then they'll figure it out. So here we are. It's pretty amazing. What, 10 years, 11 years later? Was there a, a point at which you decided or felt you were ready to, to, to be a winemaker, not just an assistant and not just part of a team, but like to be, to have your name on that, on that part of the business? Well, I think, you know, I think we all come into it early thinking that we want to be there at some point. I do remember being in school and I remember like sitting out on the crush pad with all the other students late at night during harvest and talking about what we wanted. And I remember um, all these students talking about, oh, well, I want to be here. I want to be in Napa. I want my own label. And it came around to my turn. And I said, I want to be a consultant. I want to be a flying winemaker. Um, obviously, I'm not there. But my goal has never been to have my name on a label or to um, have my own winery. Mm -hmm. I've always been more interested in making wines for somebody else or or being you know being helpful instrumental in making better wines i mean i would much rather be behind the scenes than than have my own brand there's there's no desire there for me to have my own label sure. just not who i am you talked a little bit earlier about no right way to make wine or no one right way to make wine. Um, I'm curious at how you've developed your winemaking philosophy and, and how you would describe your winemaking philosophy today. Well, you know, I think I'm like, I'm like Sally from Harry Met Sally is I'm the worst kind of winemaker. I'm a low maintenance, I consider myself a low maintenance winemaker, but I'm a high maintenance winemaker. Um, I'm both. Uh, <laughs> I like to say that I like to stay hands off um, I very much have inherited the indigenous winemaking from, from my days at Ponzi, but I'm also a bit of a control freak. So, you know, I'm there constantly looking and monitoring and, and there's a lot that goes in, in the background. So I, I don't know if I've answered that question very well, but. No, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. I'm, just, I'm curious because when we talk about winemaking philosophy, some people are hands-off, some people are hands-on, some people are, you know, it's all in the vineyard, some people are, I can do it after the fact, you know. It's always curious to see where people lie in the, uh, you know, where does great wine come from? I think that if, 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 I wish I had my tasting book with me. I mean, I spend more time than anybody else, I think, tasting and blending and fussing and I don't know. It's like I, I am, I'm definitely hands off as far as letting the, wanting to let the vineyard show, mm -hmm. but I'm definitely hands on in that, you know, I, 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 my idea of, and I think this, once again, this actually goes back to everybody that I've, I've worked with, is that if you think about a blend for me, you know, I think the blend is like the highest 
is like the most refined thing about winemaking. It's really easy to say, you know, I'm going to put it out there and this is a single vineyard, but is that the best tasting wine you could make? Could you take that single vineyard and, and put a little bit of this and a little bit of this? It's like making a recipe, you know? You can say, this fish tastes great. This is the best fish you could ever have. It's the freshest, nicest fish. But does that mean that if you don't put any seasoning on it at all, it's going to be any better than if you put a tiny bit of seasoning? For me, it's the same way with winemaking. I, I, think that, I think that blends are always the most complex thing you can have. And I'm always working at kind of tweaking and refining and writing notes down and looking at them later and coming back to them um, at the same time, trying to also let the vineyard show. So Once again, I'm Sally. <laughs> you can be high maintenance and low maintenance at the same time. I, I get it. I, I think it's the best height. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about um, on a me. Obviously, sorry, you said it started in 1979 at Chateau Benoit, and 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 um, I'm curious how you how it sort of navigated its own history in terms of how has it how has Anami built its own legacy while also kind of honoring the history of this come before it. Well, I think, you know, I, th I think it's interesting, you know, it's hard for me having, coming, having come in and done such a drastic U-turn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Benoits came in in 1979 and um, selected this site here in, you know, in, in the Amhill Carlton AVA. And I try to go back, it's like, what was 1979 like as, as a wine industry in Oregon? You know, we, we, can't, we can't come into the context we're in right now where we have hundreds of wineries and we have a community. I'm guessing, you know, there were a handful of wineries in 1979, let's, let's say two dozen to be probably pretty honest. People were sharing things. Mm -hmm. People were probably taking cuttings from one another. Um, most people didn't have, an, have equipment, didn't have an idea of what were the grapes to be planted. Um, and you know the 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 only vines that were surviving from 1979 when I came here was Riesling and Muller Turgau. Mm -hmm. Riesling, completely comfortable with. I'd made Riesling before. I like Riesling. Muller Turgau, I'd never heard of in my life. You know, it was one of those grapes that I had to go do research about. And I remember going out researching it. And this is in 2007 going out in the marketplace and trying to find Muller Turgau in, in Portland. And I found four from around the world. And then trying to decide how I wanted to make the Muller Turgau based on what I'd tasted here. And um, so what I tried to do is, you know, honor what had been here before. And when I, I remember coming in and tasting through the cellar before I started, I remember thinking, well, there are some nuggets here and there's some things that I want to change. And, um, at the same time, we were also planting our second estate on Shehalem Mountain. And so, you know, I came in blind trying to figure out what works here and what do we want to plant. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that most of what, what I did in 2007 has worked out. There's some things that need some tweaking, but I'm happy where we are. I'm happy that we're in a state winery. Um, and I'm, I'm happy with, you know, the blend that we have. And I don't know that, you know, that the way things were farmed, you know, for years and years and years before I started were conventional. I'm glad that we switched over to sustainable farming. I'm glad that everything is, you know, dry farmed. I'm glad that um, everything is a state. 
um, and I hope that I've been able to like carry on some of the things that there's a common thread, mm -hmm. but I think that there needed to be a huge adjustment when I started. Do you know what what caused, like why when you were hired and you were told they were, they were gonna do a U-turn, they were gonna go to all estate and they were gonna change all these things up, do you know what prompted that? You know, that's hard to say. I mean, so let's, let's say, so from 1979 to 1999, it was the Benoit's. Mm -hmm. From 1999 to 2007, Dr. Pamplin bought this winery, named it after his two daughters, Anne and Amy, and had continued the same winemaker who was the assistant winemaker for the Benoit's. Mm -hmm. I don't know what precipitated that. I was never privy to that. Sure. Um, and to be completely honest, I didn't ask because I feel like, you know, I was asked to come in and do something and for me to kind of go into why that happened, you're now starting to taint your um, creative process. So I've never gotten into that. I'm just happy that I've been able to do what I, I've done. Now, 2007 was a different world than it is in 2018. My first vintage that came out, so you asked me about my style. Mm -hmm. My style has, and I know a lot of winemakers say this is almost a cliche, is acid driven. Um, and I think that if you taste any one of my wines across our entire portfolio, you will see an acid thread. Um, and I think part of that is, is because when I was going to school to be a dancer, like most artists, you spend a lot of time working in restaurants and kitchens. So I was working in a kitchen, I know all about acidity and balance and food and fat and how these things work together. Um, but I remember my very first Oregon Pinot Camp, um, they were putting together the, uh, the seminar, uh, Multiple Personalities of Pinot Noir. <laughs> and I was part of that very first iteration of that. And I think if anybody de deserves to be on Multiple Personalities, it's me. Um, but I remember when I showed my first wine, it was a 2007 Pinot Noir, which was a cool year. And I remember one of my fellow winemakers talking about the personality of my, the personality of my wine being shrill. <laughs> I prefer acid-driven, <laughs> but the funny thing is, is now if you taste my wines in context with other Oregon Pinots, 11 years later, they taste middle of the pack. Mm -hmm. Oregon has changed drastically, stylistically in 10 years. Why? I think that we're no longer trying to um, I'm gonna use a term that, that may or may not offend you. We're no longer being score whores. Um, I feel like so many people in the early 90s were making Parker wines. We, didn't, we were so uh, uncomfortable just making the wines that we loved. We had to please Parker. We had to please scores. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that what's happened with the advent of having a computer in your pocket at all times is that you can now look up anything at any time. You can consult your friends. You know, there's a whole different way of drinking wines where you don't have to go to a magazine and look something up and saying that got a 94, I'm gonna drink it. Mm -hmm. And I think we're much more comfortable taking suggestions from our friends and, and people that we don't even know that are part of our network where we don't have to have one person who says, that's a really great wine and you're, you're following that palate. And I'm, I'm happy to see that. Because now if you see, there's a, 
there's a plethora of styles in Oregon where it used to be a lot of people really were chasing these numbers and they really needed validation. And I think as an industry, you know, Oregon is, is less insecure where we don't need to be validated as much and we can make the wines that we love. And my shrill wines are now middle of the pack. <laughs> so I'm curious about working um, for someone like Dr. Pamplin, uh, obviously a very wealthy businessman who's uh, not as many wine owners, neither not a family farm wine or a, you know, or a wine lover first. Uh, I'm curious if there's any added pressure working for someone like that or any complication. Well, first of all, um, Dr. Pamplin owns a lot of I mean, he owns hazelnuts, he owns berries, you know, he has, he has a, a, he's very deeply rooted in Oregon agriculture. So that's great. Um, that means for us as, as a winery that we have a crew that goes from grapes to berries to hazelnuts back to grapes. So in-house, we, we don't have to really outsource labor, mm -hmm. which means I have a, a full-time crew that is always, that knows the vineyards. Uh, as far as a as a, an owner, um, Dr. Pamplin and I have not sat down and had like a face-to-face -face meeting about winemaking in about three years. So he's the best kind of owner, <laughs> the kind that lets you make the wines you love and trusts you to do what you do. And I have to say that you know he's a businessman. He has a lot that it's on his plate, but he's 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 not like a lot of people that are in kind of like telling you what they want and they need, even though they're not winemakers. Mm -hmm. That's the worst kind of owner. Sure. Um, I'm curious if you know what his vision was when you when he hired you, or what his vision for Anami was, yeah. or, or is today. Well, I mean, his vision has been the same, and his vision is is uh, for us to make the best wines we can off the site we have. Um, I mean, really, the reason that it's called Anami and named after his daughters. It's, it's, it's a legacy thing. Um, you know, I have, I have two sparkling wines named after his wife. I have a dessert wine named after his family home in, in Virginia. Every single vineyard is named after, you know, uh, somebody in his family, his grandkids, whatever. I mean, he is basically saying, I'm going to give this to you. You run with it and hand it down. Um, which is great, you know. I don't have a very big family. I don't have a tight family. Um, I don't have that, but it's just wonderful to see that, and yet to be a part of it, peripherally, but not have to be involved in it. <laughs> what's uh, what's special about the Yamhill Carlton AVA? What's uh, what makes this uh, unique spot? Well, I mean. I, I think you're, you're opening a can of worms with me. I think the Yamhill Carlton AVA is an awful AVA as far as, I'm honest. I mean, I think that it's, I think it's two AVAs. Um, I think it's badly designed AVA. You have where we are, we have this up, uplifted marine sediment. You have this ridge that runs from here, you know, all the way to basically Willikensee mm -hmm. on. Um, that soil is, is, is marine, you know, an, it's, it's marine bed. Um, that is one AVA. And then you have the coast range, which for the most part is basaltic. Um, I feel like those are two AVAs. Mm -hmm. So you have this horseshoe that should be sliced in half. So um, I'm going to answer the question in that I think that it's a, I think that it's a very unique, but I think that it's two AVAs. Um, 
what's unique about this site and what's unique about Shea or Willa Kenzie or anybody, you know, Soder, anybody on this ridge is this soil, is this uplifted marine sediment, which is completely different from three to four miles behind me where you have, do you have the coast range? The coast range affects us in that it gives us a rain shadow, but uh, for instance, I used to, when I first started here, I would get pomard from Rainbow Ridge, mm -hmm. three or four miles behind me. We grow pomard here. Those two wines from those two sites, which are four miles apart, could not be more different. And it's the difference between volcanic soil and sedimentary soil. Interesting. So what do you like best about the terroir here then? Well, I think what, I think that we have, I already mentioned the soil. Mm -hmm. You have the Van Duzer corridor. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have, what you end up having is you end up having um, devigorated marine soil, a really big uh, diurnal swing. So you end up with a lot of tannins, a lot of really thick skins, a lot of really dark, chewy fruit. <laughs> and really, you know, you have Pinot Noir that is uncharacteristically Pinot Noir. I mean, Pinot Noir is known, be, known as being light and bright and delicate mm -hmm. and you can make i mean if you were if you wanted to you could make huge monolithic wines from yamhill carlton sure sure really the task here is restraining those tannins and making something delicate you mentioned earlier the the idea of kind of a new something new every day here and, and appealing to your creative side i'm curious if there's a a favorite part of the year or a favorite part of your uh, of your job that really appeals to you the most? Well, I think I, I'm going to go back to kind of, I'm going to go back to dancing again. Okay. Um, the beauty of dancing was that you'd spend most of your life in a theater or a, um, a rehearsal space mm -hmm. and you were focused on what you were doing. And then there's a very small amount of your time where you're actually performing. Mm -hmm. For me, it's very much that same thing that I enjoy. Most of my life, I'm focused, I'm in the winery, I am winemaking, I'm in shorts, I'm in a t-shirt, I'm in boots. It's just like rehearsing. And then you go out for a very small period of time and you're out on the road and you're showing your wines and you get to taste a finished wine. I mean, as a winemaker, we rarely get to taste finished wines. They're always, I'm always one, two, three years in the future trying to figure out what things are going to be like. And you go out and you do a winemaker's dinner and you're tasting your wine with food. And it's all the things I've said about acidity and balance and all these decisions that you made in the past. And you're like, holy crap. You know, these are actually pretty nice, you know, because they never are when you're working on them. Um, so for me, there is not necessarily a favorite part. I obviously love harvest. Mm -hmm. um, who doesn't love like the thrill of harvest? It's like, it's, it's just an endorphin, it's an endorphin rush the entire time. But what I really do love is that they're that part of me that allows me to be focused and that part that allows me to go out and perform and do exactly what I'd been doing years ago. So what's in the future for Anamir? What's in the future for you personally? That's a good question. I have no idea, <laughs> honestly. I mean, uh, I feel like every day I walk into the winery and it's tabla rasa. I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's the best I can do for that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, so the changes, sort of flavor profile in Oregon since you've you've been here. I'm curious what other changes you've noticed in the last ten years of 
or 10, 15 years uh, in the industry? What's the biggest change other than just pure size that you've noticed? Well, I have to say, you know, we've done a wonderful job of still being a community. Um, that's the thing that I've seen, and it, this is like not this is like a politician to answer to your question, um, where I don't answer your question, which I will answer your question. I'm going to get to it. Um, you know, with OPC and with Steamboat and and all these other things that we have, what I love about Oregon is it's still a community as it changes. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, you know, I was at a tasting recently, and I was standing in a room, uh, and there were there's a room full of people, and I was thinking. I know like a quarter of these people. I don't know who they are. Um, so you know, we are we are on that brink of like becoming going from something that is you know very much this community that we we know each other and we've worked together and there's all this new blood and um, some really large wineries coming into play and I'm wondering. If you asked me this question five years from now, mm -hmm. what my answer would be like. Because I feel like that very much of what the last 10 years has been for me in Oregon, or actually I've been here since 2003, so 15 years in Oregon, um, has been very much the same. In that I've seen a lot of growth, but we're still working together. We still have that, like when I'm out in the marketplace, there's that, um, unspoken rule that if you're in selling your wine to somebody that you do not poach somebody else's wine off the shelf it's just unspoken it's like look you can buy this wine this wine is great they're my neighbor i know them i love them you do not sell them out where i feel like now that we have um, some corporate wineries and we have salespeople sales teams that are n nowhere linked to Oregon, um, that it may not be the same playing field. Um, and we have a lot of people coming in that just don't understand that, that this is, this, is, this is not the way that we work. We don't say bad things about each other. We work as a team. We are Team Oregon. We're a small community. We're still small wineries. And this is how we survive. So. Once again, I feel like I half answered your question. So I'm going to give it to that and say that's, that's the best I can answer. do. Yeah. And it leads to my next question, which is what is the future like for Oregon wine? And what, what do you think is going to happen? And what do you kind of hope is going to happen? Well, you know what? I, I feel like what I, and this goes back to what I love about the diversity, is I feel like that there is um, there's a place for a lot of styles. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people coming into Oregon, um, you know, interested in natural winemaking, interested in amphorae, interested in, you know, bringing whatever, you know, Burgundian ideals. Um, I love all that. I think that that's great. I think that's good for us. What concerns me is uh, Oregon grapes going to California and being made into inexpensive wines um, and the, or the race to the bottom. I mean, you go out in the marketplace and you see less and less expensive Pinots. And um, that's a war that nobody can win, you know. Uh, I'm speaking for somebody who's farming a state farmed grapes. Um, you know, there's a price point at, at a 20,000 case or a 5,000 case or a 2,000 case, whatever your scale may be. 
there's a price point that you can't get beyond. And you go out into, you go out to show your wines and they're like, well, you know, this is a really great wine, but I can get this for $8. And you don't have enough time to explain why your 25 or 35 or $40 wine is not the same as an $8 wine. You, you it's, a, it's a war you can't win. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think the biggest concern five, 10, 15 years down the road is maintaining the identity of being a family owned winery, making quality wines and not getting into the place that you see in Australia, that you see in New Zealand, that you see in California, where it is just a commodity. Because mm -hmm. we're not commodities, we're people, we're still people. Sure. Do you foresee the growth that's going through right now in terms of number of wineries, number of vineyards, amount of wine, do you see that continuing? Do you see, or do you see a, a slowing down on the horizon? I think that, I think that it's only the tip of the iceberg. I think that if you, I think that if you, and I'm not an accountant, I've made that quite clear. <laughs> I'm a modern dancer. Uh, uh, I think that, but if you're a number cruncher, I think the reason that you see so much, so many people coming into Oregon is because they're looking at price of land, which is very cheap relatively speaking, compared to California, and then the price point of the wines that are being sold. So we're a bargain, we're, we're bargain shopping at the moment, where you have these people with large amount of resources that can come in. Um, so it is definitely, definitely changing. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I, I can't see that, you know, we have a lot of land still available mm -hmm. to develop. Um, there are a lot of places in the valley we haven't explored for planting grapes. And most people in the world that drink our wines, they don't know the difference between Yamhill Carlton or Ribbon Ridge or any of these other sub-AVAs. You're lucky if they know Willamette Valley. <laughs> and uh, you're even, well, actually it isn't as bad. Most people can get Oregon and Washington, but a lot of them still get those confused. Yeah. Speaking personally, I'm curious if there's uh, anything that you're looking to try differently, a, a, new, a new approach or a new grape or anything like that, or if it's just kind of honing what you're already doing. I'm always trying something different. Um, I recently went to, like a week ago, I was at uh, City of Riesling, mm -hmm. sitting down with a bunch of Riesling winemakers from not only the United States, but Germany as well, which made me rethink the way that we're growing and making Riesling. That's probably the first thing that's gonna happen, like right away. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the second thing is, you know, we're growing Gamay. I'm now, what, three vintages into Gamay. And at the moment, most exciting red grape that we're growing. I love Gamay. And I think the future of Gamay in Oregon is incredible. Mm -hmm. That and sparkling wine. You know, I'm having a lot of fun with a lot of things that aren't necessarily something that we have a lot of history with. Mm -hmm. So why Gamay specifically? Why do you think the future is so bright? Well, I think, first of all, Gamay hits, for me, all the, the points that I love. I mean, it, it's higher acidity than, than Pinot Noir. Um, it's juicy, it's earthy, um, it's inky. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a beautiful grape. I mean, and if, you're, uh, if you drink Pinot all the time, it's just, just different enough that it's still, it's still in the wheelhouse, but it's just different enough to be fun. Sure. 
What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? I would say don't move here. <laughs> uh, I, just like everybody else, you know, you, you, you always feel like you're the last person there and you can shut the door. Um, that's not true, but it kind of is. Um, it's, I think, you know, I think that the biggest thing for me, and I'm going to go back to like coming here accidentally, is to be open. Mm -hmm. You know, we all come in to whatever we're doing with whatever kind of preconceived ideas about what we want, what we need. And um, had I left school thinking that everything had to be made safely and inoculated and cleanly, I'd be making really clean, wonderful wines. I might be still making Zinfandel, um, but I'd be, make, I'd be a very different person, a very different winemaker. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of people that we can learn from. I mean, we still have some of these founders that you know, they're still alive. They're still making wine. They're still vibrant. They still have ideas. And then you have the people that learn from them. And then you have people like me that have come in later. And I think that for all the new people that are here, we've had a string of really, really easy, like lob it over the plate. Even some of them have been more like T-ball where they're actually sitting, <laughs> sitting there. I mean, it's been really difficult to make bad wines, but it's Oregon. And it's inevitable that we're going to have a difficult vintage. Mm -hmm. And if you've come in here in the last couple of years and you've been making wines and it's been really easy, when that vintage hits, when we get it again, <laughs> you're going to need to turn to those people that have been here for 30 or 40 years because they've seen it before. And don't be arrogant enough to think that you have it. Learn from them, listen from them, and listen to the community that's been here. Because that is the value of Oregon. It's like the Borg, you know. It's a shared, it's a shared community of ideas. That's all the questions that I have prepared for you. Is there anything else that I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention here at the end? Nope, I'm good. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really thank you, guys. It. Great answers. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.